Welcome to the sermon podcast feed of Liberty Church Collingswood, where we want to live, speak, and serve as the very presence of Jesus in Collingswood and surrounding boroughs, or wherever God has placed you. Find us at libertycollingswood.org. Part of our mission is preaching sermons, so here you go. Keep in mind that these messages are designed to bring the timeless message of Jesus to bear in specific contexts to specific people, the whole eternal word, changing worlds thing. Would you hear good news here? Bon appétit. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of the repentance for forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals and the angels were ministering to him. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Friends, this is the gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, O Christ. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, what a delight it is to come to the beginning of the Gospel of Mark here this morning, and as we embark on a sermon series, Encounters with Jesus, Studies in the Gospels, meet us both this summer, Sunday morning, and for the remainder to come. Jesus, thank you that here we meet you face to face. Spirit, illumine this, the very word of God to us. Father, would we know the welcome of this Christ about whom we have just read. Jesus, thank you for your words and your work culminating both in you, crucified and resurrected for us and for the world. Would we know your gracious face and forgiveness and renovation even now? We pray in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. You may be seated. Often, and I say this as a preacher, words are just words. They're just words. They don't really do much. They don't really change anything. They're just words probably that have been said before. There's nothing new under the sun. They're just words. A couple of personal instances of words just being words, not changing anything, nothing new under the sun. For a number of years, 
I kept in the back of my mind, hey, what if one day I need to start or found a coffee shop? What would the name of that coffee shop be? And I thought to myself, I have the best name for a coffee shop in the history of the world. And that name for that coffee shop was so incredibly good that I didn't tell anybody else about it because it was mine. I had copyrighted it in my mind just on name alone. This coffee shop is going to crush it. But then as years went by, I thought, the ship has sailed probably on me ever starting a coffee shop, so I can begin to tell the name of this coffee shop that I had conjured in my own head to other people. It's fair game now. I hope somebody jumps on it because it's great. Do you want to hear it? The name of my coffee shop that would have made millions. I told my friends the daily grind. Get it? Isn't that awesome? And I actually told a couple of friends that I built it up just like that. I'm telling you now. And what I heard back was, oh, there's like hundreds of coffee shops with that name. And I was like, no, it's not. And then I went online. And it's like, yes, there are. Tons of coffee shops that have that very name. Words are just words. Nothing to under the sun. I was really excited last year to coin the phrase, Liberty Collingswood Represents Initiative. We are pursuing a third-way walk in worldview, just like a lot of other people. I thought I had made that up, but then I went online and was told by you, not original at all. And then I was like, what about Latin, the Via Tertia? Looked that up, also taken, also copyrighted. Nothing new under the sun, words are just words. Our politicians. This is going to be great. I introduce to you something new that's going to change our nation, change our world. Nah, just words. Or with art, whether the visual arts or filmmaking or music, how often do we actually encounter a work of art that is genuinely new or groundbreaking without antecedent? Or is it just, yeah, we've seen riffs on this before. But. Every once in a while, words are spoken that change our world. Here are a few from history. Speaking of Latin, alia yacta est. The die is cast. Who said that? Julius Caesar, on the outskirts of Rome, before the Rubicon River, at that point, Caesar was just a general, and it was illegal at the time to bring the Roman army within the city limits of Rome. But Caesar said, I'm going to do this. And as his troops were crossing the Rubicon, alia yacta est, the die is cast. And effectively, Caesar was declaring civil war against the Roman Senate and the Roman Republic en route to Rome becoming an empire. Here's another one. Here I stand, I can do no other. Who's that from? Martin Luther, the time of the Reformation, when he was on trial in the church courts about his view of the salvation of Jesus by grace and grace alone, not by works. Martin Luther, you must recant or we will excommunicate you from the church. Luther said, here I stand, I can do no other. And so he was. And the church in the West went from one to two. 
Or how about this one? No. Rosa Parks, right? No, I'm not going to go to the back of the bus. The world was changed again. Likewise, with the work and the words of Jesus of Nazareth, including what Jesus said as recorded here at the end of our sermon passage for this morning, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. That's something new. That changes the world. And so for this summer, we are going to study the Jesus that said that and many other things besides. Encounters with Jesus, studies in the Gospels. We'll have different jumping around from the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the accounts of Jesus' life. We'll have some guest preachers in here too, but it's all going to be focused on this Jesus. Why study the Gospels? Why study Jesus? The best explanation that I've ever read comes from a lesser-known Scottish preacher who wrote a commentary on the Gospels that put it this way, thinking about Jesus and relationship to the rest of the Bible. All of the Bible's inspired. All of the Bible is God's Word. But only in this one place, these four Gospels, do we encounter the center of the story. The Scott David Brown said this, The Gospels are the central portion of divine revelation. Into it as a reservoir, all the foregoing revelations pour their full tide, and out of it as a fountain flow all the subsequent revelations. In other parts of Scripture, we hear Christ by the hearing of the ear, but here our eye seeth him. Elsewhere we see Jesus through a glass darkly, but here face to face. Why study Jesus? Arguably, he is the most important figure in human history. East or west, north or south, ancient or modern, who has driven the course of history like Jesus of Nazareth? And more than any other person that has ever lived, Jesus of Nazareth, the most loved, the most pondered, the most prayed to, the most reviled, the most invoked, either by way of blessing or curse. Blessing, thank you, Jesus, praise Jesus, or invoked as a curse, as a swear word. When we hit our thumb with a nail or a hammer, or when we're instantly frustrated at somebody else. And think of it this way, maybe this happens, as far as I know it doesn't, does anybody, when they strike their thumb or get instantly frustrated with somebody, say, for example, Con-F-U-S-I-S? No. But some will swear in Jesus' name in that same way. Why study Jesus? Because he is such, maybe the most of all, a magnetic and a misunderstood person. Magnetic. You've heard this before, but let's take a moment to think about it. People will say here in the West, maybe you've thought this yourself, maybe you're sitting here watching online thinking it right now. I don't really like the church, but I love Jesus. I hate the church. I hate Christendom. I hate Christianity. Not on board with any of that, 
but Jesus is still okay with me. I got nothing against that guy. Cross comparison again, I could be wrong, but as far as I know, at least in my personal experience, I have never heard anybody say, I hate Buddhists, but I love Buddha. Or I hate Muslims, but I love Muhammad. And I'm not just taking pot shots at those other religions, but it seems like in those cases, it's a package deal. If you think highly of Buddhists, you think highly of Buddha. If you think highly of Muslims, you think highly of Muhammad. But there's something about Jesus so singular, so magnetic, so compelling, that even people that have a very low opinion of the church don't let that opinion attach itself to the church's founder and author. Most magnetic. And then also most misunderstood. I love Jesus because Jesus is all about love, for example, one might say. But then isn't it also the case as we go into the scriptures, as we go into the gospels, Jesus talks about judgment and hell constantly. Or what coheres so beautifully in an integrated way in Jesus, the church has struggled to balance for generations. Is Jesus the holy and righteous and pure one or the welcoming one? See, the holy one. Didn't he say, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Truly I say to you, not one iota, not a dot, will pass away from the law until all is accomplished. Or, and, who is this that eats with tax collectors and sinners? If you're not sure where you are with Jesus, I understand. Thank you for being part of this dialogue right now. But I would suggest to you, in all of history, the one historical figure that you must examine is Jesus of Nazareth. If you're going to try to get to the bottom of just one, Jesus would be the one based on external evidence, the one that has driven the course of human history like no other, or internally, Peter, the apostle, confesses about none other but Jesus. Jesus, you are the Christ. You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Jesus, you are the one that has the words of eternal life. Or who else but Jesus had said, don't just look to my teaching, but look to me. Because I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Why study Jesus? The church has confessed for centuries that we need him. We need his love. We need his forgiveness. We need his healing. We need his courage. We need his life, as does the world. No matter where we come here this morning in terms of faith or non-faith commitments, I would suggest that underneath all of our longings for a better world is what Jesus brings with the kingdom of God. Why study Jesus on a personal note? Because I need him. For me, regardless of external circumstances, the best times of my life have been the ones when I have been most full of Jesus. 
by the Holy Spirit of God that unites me to this Christ by faith. I am full of Jesus, and that means I'm doing great at those times. I'm praying to Jesus. I'm walking with Jesus. I'm led by Jesus. And it's also the case that for me, the best people I know, the men and women that I point to and say, I want to be like him or her when I grow up. By and large, those are the people that are full of Jesus. The most humble, the most servant-oriented, the most contented, the most joyful. Jesus did it. So this summer, let's drill down. Let's explore. Let's be filled by this Jesus, by this Christ. So two parts for the rest of the sermon from here. Introducing Jesus, introducing the sermon series a little bit too, from the introduction of the Gospel of Matthew. Two parts, a context and a conflict. Context and conflict. Those are the two parts for this morning. Tiny bit of background about the Gospel of Mark itself. It's probably the earliest Gospel written about Jesus, and also the shortest, the earliest, written in the 60s A.D., which might just seem like a number to you, but think about this for a second. This book was written and circulated within the time of thousands of living witnesses to the resurrected Jesus Christ, Jesus of Nazareth. And try this on for a second. Throughout the ages of the church, the church has been opposed, including in that first century, in that first generation. And there were plenty of people that didn't want others to follow Jesus, that didn't want this movement to succeed. And as far as we can tell, however, from the historical record, the criticisms thrown at the church, thrown at this early movement, said a lot of things, but none of the criticisms included, hey, you know what? Jesus didn't rise. In fact, that was not contended against, that there was this resurrection, and in some way that Jesus was divine. Instead, all of the early critiques and criticisms and arguments against had to do with, well, maybe Jesus wasn't human. Maybe either before or after his crucifixion and resurrection, he was a ghost. He was a spirit, but not really one of us. The internal logic, it seems, from those opponents of Christianity, we can't get away with saying he wasn't resurrected. Because too many people saw it. It's too widely attested. And then also the Gospel of Matthew, the shortest of the Gospels. You could read it in about an hour and change, even today. And Jesus is a man of action. Mark is, among all of the four Gospels, the most point-to-point, action-to-action. Jesus is always doing stuff. You hear a word as a refrain in the Gospel of Matthew. We have it twice here in our passage, too, immediately. In the original language, the Greek, euthus, constantly. Jesus does this, not just to do it, but euthus. And then immediately he goes here, immediately he does this. Immediately, he's the one that's doing all of the acting and action. But one of the few places that Jesus is not doing all of these things is here, at the beginning of his gospel, where Jesus, to begin in this gospel account, is passive. He's not even on camera for the very beginning. Mark, the narrator, quotes some scripture, And talks about John the Baptist. Jesus hasn't yet arrived. And speaking of quoting scriptures, for Jesus, most of the time in Mark's gospel, it's he himself that does the quoting of scripture. 
Not here. It's Mark that is framing the ministry, the person, and work of Jesus. And here, for the most part, Jesus is not active, but passive. Even when he comes on camera, he's the one that is being baptized by John. Jesus is the one that is being driven by the Spirit into the wilderness. Jesus is the one that's being tempted by Satan. Jesus is being acted upon until the very end of the verses that I read, Jesus says, now it's my turn. Verses 14 and 15. <clears throat> now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe in the gospel. In this Jesus, a new rule and a new age has dawned upon the world and upon the cosmos because here is our new king. For Israel and for the world. If you were tracking with us from the later sermons from our Genesis sermon series, we said, I think last week, that there's one story for all things. There's one story, there's one plan of redemption for God's people and for the world. It's just one, according to the theological term, is covenant promises. Really, it's all one. Different parts, different phases, all interlocking, interconnecting, centering on Jesus of Nazareth, which can be summarized. No matter what part of the scriptures you look at, God's presence with his people in his place, and he's doing it by grace. That's the story. And when Jesus says the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe in the gospel, it's all coming together. God's presence with his people in his place and all by grace. We've seen in Genesis, God created all things good, but then we messed it up. We're fallen. And even if you're not listening to this sermon as a committed follower of Jesus, nevertheless, you, we all, felt the effects of the fall this week. How you were stressing out about scarcity. Are we going to have enough one way or another? Enough money? Do I have enough time? Do I have enough relationships? Do I have enough fun? That's a result of the fall. And that really nasty thing that somebody told you this week that really hurt your feelings, that's a result of the fall too. We sin. That time this week when there was a loved one or a coworker or a friend that could have really used a kind word from you, but you were like, nope, I'm not going to give it. I'm going to say nothing instead. Or I'm going to double down on something mean. That's the fall. We're still waiting. In some ways, even though Jesus has already come to inaugurate the kingdom of God, the consummation of the kingdom of God is yes to come. We are still waiting and laboring under all of the effects of the fall, and we're feeling it. A book I read recently, The Imperfectionists, by an author named Tom Rockman. One of the characters says this about all of us. Peace is a state of humanity. Peace is a state that humanity will not tolerate. Man's instinct is to commit violence. Peace is not a stable state in our world. That's the fall. And even if we think, ah, the Bible's not real, it's just a bunch of fairy tales, I can't believe it, it doesn't fit our modern context, isn't it the case, on the other hand, that when we have these moments that life is not the way it's supposed to be, from the Bible's perspective, that's the image of God barking again. 
when we think to ourselves, this is wrong. This is not the way the world should be. Why do we think that? Except that deep in our breast, God has implanted within us a longing and a yearning and a knowing that we were made for something better. Centuries ago, the French philosopher Blaise Pascal said this about our mixed up fallen condition and yet knowing that there must be more. Man's greatness is so obvious that it can be deduced from his wretchedness. For what is nature in animals, we call wretchedness in man. Thus recognizing that if his nature is today like that of the animals, he must have fallen from some better state, which was once his own. Who indeed would think himself unhappy not to be king, unless one who had been dispossessed. The fact that we are not where we feel like we should be points to the fact that we know God has created us for more. And so we have God creating all things good, including us, the image of God, and so on, the fallen reality, and God has promised more. And in an extremely skillful way, Mark paints this masterpiece of layer upon layer upon layer of blessing and fulfillment within this passage from the Gospel of Mark at the beginning. Let's go back to the top. The beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Here we go. From Isaiah, and even from this passage from Isaiah, the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Isaiah, centuries before Jesus here, is looking backward and forward. There had been an exodus where through Moses, God delivered his ancient people, the Israelites, from Egypt. They journeyed through the wilderness. And there, Isaiah says, there's going to come another one. A new exodus. Mark says, now it's here. Now, once for all time, God is delivering his people from the enslavement of sin and death and the devil. Isaiah quoted mostly here, but also a little bit of Malachi from the very end. Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. That comes from Malachi, a minor prophet, the last book in the Hebrew scriptures, the Old Testament. God's final revelation before centuries of silence until Jesus. But you can look at that last book, Malachi, where the prophet there says, Thus saith the Lord, in the time to come, I will send my messenger to make the way straight for the Lord's return again. A figure like Elijah, the old prophet, is going to reappear in a different form. A new, so to speak, Elijah is coming. And so he does. John the Baptist, verses 4 to 6. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. All Judea, all Jerusalem going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan. John is coming and he's here. But for all the prominence and importance and power of John the Baptist, he's only penultimate. He's not the main attraction. He's only preparing a way, as John himself says. Verse 7, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Through the one to come, the Spirit will follow in fullness. The Holy Spirit. 
the Spirit of God that was hovering over the face of the deep at the beginning of creation, the Spirit of creation, and now the Spirit of recreation once again as one comes in verse 9 who is new. In those days, Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. He's baptized. And isn't it striking that the one who is ultimate and mighty is also one of us? He doesn't baptize John the Baptist, but is baptized by him. In the words of other accounts of this story in Luke and Matthew, so that all righteousness might be fulfilled. The one, the one and only, the way, the truth, and the life is one of us. Will we encounter him this summer? And not to hold you in in suspense, I, I have no application for you here this morning. I got nothing. No to do or take away, really, except to direct you towards Jesus this summer. This is the one that we need. This is the one that we must pursue. Context and now conflict. Jesus comes, he is baptized, and the heavens themselves open again. Verse 10. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. Another small fulfillment here, again in the book of Isaiah, a longing. When will heaven come to earth again? From the end of Isaiah 64. Oh, that you would rend the heavens, O God, and come down, that the mountains might quake at your presence. Wasn't that the original design? God's presence with his people in his place. Would heaven and earth be one? Oh, would we long that the dwelling of God would be with humanity again? And here it is. The heavens ripped open and coming to meet earth once again by the Spirit in the Son. It's all happening. And the Father recognizes the Son. You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. We'll get back to that in a moment. But I'm fascinated by the fact, and here I am in the middle of my third decade of loving Jesus and studying the scriptures. I'm increasingly fascinated by how The temptation of Jesus occurs in the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, because they give more of a synopsis of Jesus' life. The gospel of John, which I love equally, is a little more conceptual and big picture about Jesus. In all of the synoptic gospels, Jesus is tempted by Satan. And in every case, the temptation of Jesus occurs right after, in terms of the narrative of what Jesus is doing, right after he's baptized. Right after the Father says, you are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. The Father recognizes the Son, but not only the Father. It's as if at this moment of recognition from heaven above, likewise hell below takes notice. And the serpent stirs. Satan knows the threat that is to come. And tries to knock him off. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness, 40 days being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. In other accounts, we read Satan doesn't get the job done 
from his perspective then, and he departs until he finds another opportune time when Jesus again is attacked during the crucifixion. I've got to stop this guy because this is the center of the story. This is the center of God's plan. And isn't it true that in all of our myths and legends and stories over and over again, what's the story? The eternal battle of good versus evil. Well, you know what? It's not a myth in the sense that it's false. It's true. There is an eternal battle of good versus evil. But what if the good guys win? Or better, what if the good guy has won for us? The kingdom of God is not going to come without a fight. But what if at the end of time when Jesus returns, the good wins? Because Jesus has conquered the evil and the sin and the devil. When our waiting will cease and everything from large-scale wars to small-scale sins will be done away with forever. And so Jesus comes. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Jesus climaxes this introduction because finally he's acting. And we hit the ground running from here. The kingdom of God, in some ways, will unpack this for the rest of the sermon series. The kingdom that Jesus brings, what's it about? Well, we see so many layers here, right? So many scriptures are being fulfilled. A new exodus is happening. Heaven is joining earth again. Elijah has come. And then the Messiah that's been promised. And even though on one hand, Jesus is passive, mostly in this passage, he's being acted upon, but all of the other characters are revolving around this Jesus. He is the one. The Father recognizing. The Spirit descending. Satan opposing. Angels ministering. All to Jesus. Because he is the one. And here's the twist. Jesus, the mighty one, is also the one that dies. I said we'd come back once more to the Father saying, You are my son. You are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. That's a statement of identity for Jesus and also a couple of echoes. On one hand, this is an echo of a thread throughout the Hebrew Scriptures, the Old Testament, that the Messiah truly is the king. You can go and look at some point, for example, the second psalm, Psalm 2, which is echoed here that the Son, recognized by God, will be the king of the universe, all things. So you are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. In effect, you are the Messiah King of all things. But there's also an echo, you are my beloved Son. From Isaiah, once more, the servant. Isaiah points to a servant to come, the shadowy messianic figure who's not only any servant, but the servant that would suffer, the suffering servant. And that's what Jesus does. Jesus offers himself on the cross, God's presence with his people in his place. If it's going to happen, it's going to be by grace and grace alone because we have messed it up. But it is this beloved son and no other 
that says to his father on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? As Jesus takes upon himself the sins of all of the people of God for all time, and in his resurrection, cancels the debt for sin, just as we saw a couple of weeks ago, Noah making a sacrifice of atonement, getting off the ark. There still needs to be a reckoning. That pointed to this in conquering sin and death and the devil for all time. The son, the servant, needs to die. So as we grow closer to this Jesus this summer, like old Mr. Drago told me in Latin class, don't get too comfortable. Because you know the note upon which the Gospel of Mark ends? The disciples are freaking out a little bit. Moving ahead to the end. Jesus is crucified, died, buried, ascended. An angel says, but go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee, to the first women that saw the tomb. There you will see him just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for they were trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they were saying nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. This is a big deal. I really do need to repent and believe in this gospel. We really do need to follow this Jesus, living, speaking, and serving, as not just anybody's presence, but as the presence of this Jesus about whom we have read and whom we will pursue this summer. We'll follow this Jesus into mission. How will we be changed this season? In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Hey, could that have been the best sermon ever? Eh, the odds are strongly not in its favor. Still, thanks for listening, and be sure to rate, review, and subscribe. You can also check out our version of a preaching after party, the post-Sunday blues, a preaching post-mortem, on the same podcast feed, where you can go backstage with the sermon. Live, speak, and serve at you later.